stop bullying and shouting at the lower orders? Never! There's only one way to win a campaign. Shout, shout and shout again! This is Shot and Shield. Listening in Wellington, New Zealand, Littleton, Colorado and Rome, Italy. This is the Shot and Shield Supercast. A podcast dedicated to 19th century wargaming and history. A program meant to be heard while you are painting your miniatures and building your terrain. I am your host, the Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida. And Shot and Shield is sponsored by Dr. Harold's Miniatures and Collectibles. Now, the site, it's not pretty, but it's because Dr. Harold invests in his stock. They have a ton of gaming supplies for you. You can visit them at drherald.myshopify.com. In this episode, I uh, plan on reviewing a, a war game rule set called Ram Anything Gray by Prior Alred Glidden for JuniorGeneral.org, which you can download for free. I will also answer some emails. I got a short audio discovery to close out the podcast. And before I continue, I want to give uh, some love to those of you uh, listening to Shot and Shield in Marrakesh uh, and in Morocco. Uh, I do pay attention to all of the analytics for this show. And one of the things that always uh, amazed me is how many uh, folks listen to the show from other parts of the world. And in the whole continent of Africa, the number one city where uh, listeners, well, listen uh, to this podcast is in Marrakesh. So when I saw the, the, the horrible earthquake and seeing that over 2,000 people have passed away, uh, are killed because of this, uh, yeah, that's, that sucks. That sucks. And uh, heart uh, goes out to everybody in, uh, in that area of the world. Uh, I mean, we have we have uh, strife and and pain all over the world, but that one I was just like saw that and I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me! You know that sucks. All the historic sites that have been destroyed or damaged, and as as I tape this right here, rescue uh, crews are, haven't even gotten near the uh, site in the Atlas Mountains to take a look at the villages in that area. Uh, so that's heartbreaking uh, to hear, but. Uh, Heart goes out, and I hope everybody who listens to Shot and Shield who lives in that area uh, is safe and you're good. You know, homes and stuff, that can all be rebuilt, but your safety and your life, way more important than all that stuff. So, And the other thing, for uh, those of us who aren't in that area, when you see uh, Red Cross and the international uh, folks start to go in there and help, my suggestion, do, I know I'm going to do this as well, I'm going to figure out a way to help as best as I can. So I would encourage all of you to do the same. Okay, so with that said, listen. He is the bon vivant of wargaming. Claude Bailey, the friar of 54mm, the best-dressed man in our hobby. In this episode, we're talking about uniforms and color. Now, I'm going to be starting the interview right now, but I want you to know, <laughs> Claude is driving, and when he was driving, uh, his, his phone was cutting in and out. So there's going to be times where it says gone. And then there's going to be time when it's gone. And there's going to be another time when it's gone. And then there's going to be another time when uh, he's back at his home on a different uh, microphone. So I'll, I'll mention those in there. But uh, please listen. Uh, Claude is awesome. We love Claude here on uh, Shot and Shield. And we're glad that uh, uh, he was able to join me. And we had a great conversation. Here it is. Uh-huh. There you go. Sorry, man. I, I'm driving. It's been one of those days, dude. You're driving? Yeah. 
you you got to pay attention to the road. You don't want to be doing this. What are you doing? Well, I I, I, I I'm busy, man. I, I gotta. But no, we can we just do audio? Yeah, we can do audio. Sorry, I mean I I'll, you'll still see me, but it's not going to be very exciting because it's going to be me driving down the road. Oh no, you're always sassy, man. <laughs> you're always sassy. <laughs> How's it going, buddy? It's going. It's going okay. Outstanding. So what are what what are you thinking uniform wise? I'm excited as always. Well, uh, you know, it was just it's just some basic questions because I'm trying to I was trying to think to help some painters, you know, because sometimes I get emails and people are like, you know, how do you find the color for this or how do you find the color for that? And that's sort of where my head is. Um, and I figure I just ask some basic questions and we just kind of roll from there. So you're talking basically. I think I I like this this thread by the way a lot. I think a lot of people don't have a really good sense of how to do the research in the first place. Other than I mean, unless you know, I mean, like Osprey is great. That's something I do every single day. I Google different uniforms. That's a good way to position it. I'll see a picture of something else, just random right. in a search. Maybe like, oh. Oh, what's that? Like uh, the ones I just, the Shervin rev- regiment that I just finished, you know, Russian Highlanders. I never knew. Yeah. I never knew, you know, so here they are, you know, all dressed up like, you know, really beat up with this big white furry hat. And it's like, where'd these guys come from? They're not in movies. <laughs> they're not in, they're not, they, I don't see right. their book, you know, it but was, they're legit. yeah, they're legit. They're just, it's just through word of mouth and then a few pictures here and there. And then all of a sudden it's like, Oh, okay, that's cool. Sitting down to try to try to work them out because you know that there's not a company out there that, that molds these. No, but sounds like, I mean, honestly, when I saw those, that would be something I think would be pretty easy to, to modify, to, to do a conversion on. Once you found the good base. Right. Now that's, yeah, obviously. You know, for sure. And then, you know, yeah. it's what? You, you grab, grab some of the milliput and do a couple of hats and some capes and you're good. Yeah. I thought you hated milliput. I do, but I had it. You know, so I already <laughs> bought it. So I might as well right. try to use it until it's gone and never use it again. Yeah, it ain't cheap either. No, I mean, it's, let's see, uh, seven, 11 bucks, something like that. You know, but tubes. so I rolled through it, but it was so crumbly and it's like, ah, grr, grr. I've, I've used it numerous times. So and sometimes it has been crumbly, but not always. So I have a feeling that it depends on the bat, how long it's been stored or who knows. But anyway, yeah, back, back to uniforms. So I, I got to tell you, be, before we even get into uniforms, mm-hmm. I, I got to <laughs> So you posted a picture of this drone that fell in your backyard. Yes. Wasn't that weird? Please, please talk about that. <laughs> okay. It was so bizarre. Yeah. I saw the picture and I'm laughing. I'm like, they're falling from the sky. And then Dude, the response. Was, I know. It's like, what? Please. There were some really, really paranoid people. Like, I, and I, obviously, I mean, that's the world we live in, unfortunately. But they were like, oh, call the police, report it. You're going to get in trouble. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I mean, what, what police state do you live in? I was, I don't know. I, I just, I, I don't go through life thinking about things like that. Maybe I'm an idiot and maybe I'm way too trusting and naive. And, but anyway, so yeah, I walked out. So I, go on the back porch in the morning while my coffee's brewing, have my cigarette, you know, have a glass of water. I look over and I'm like, I, I see this thing in the middle of the backyard underneath a tree. And it looks like a Star Wars toy from like the 1970s. Okay. And so I've never, I mean, I guess I've seen a drone, I guess, but not up close. So I walk over and yeah, sure enough, it's like, you know, they look like those, what are those tilt rotor 
those Marine Corps helicopter thing, are they the Osprey? Totally looks like that. So I'm like, okay, this is weird, very weird. And it's just nothing wrong with it. It's like got a blinking light on it. I'm like, oh, geez, what, what the hell? So I pick it up um, and I walked in the house and I told my wife, I was like, okay, leave it to me. I immediately took a picture of it and put it on Facebook. And, and you saw the, you know, the, the uh, result thing. And then nothing. No, not, you know, I don't know how to use them. I did look it up after people had posted what it was and whatnot. But but then about a week later, I get this little sticky note on my front door when I came home one afternoon. And it was this woman who, who the drone belonged to. And she said, apparently, the GPS says it fell in this general area. So I called her. She left a number. I called her and she came right over. Like, it was weird, kind of. It was like five minutes later. And it, yeah, it was an older woman, long gray hair, looked like a like an old surfer lady, like an old hippie lady, like, you know, big kahuna, beach, beach blanket bingo lady. Pretty right. funny. Yeah, I don't know what she's doing in Tucson either, even, but she, uh, I guess she uses it for, I don't think she knows how to use it really well. Let's put it that way, because she said it was missing for a week and she, did, she couldn't figure out that it had a GPS thing in it. But anyway, long story short, she's like, oh, thank you, Bob. Dude, she said it was like 1300 bucks. Really? Yeah. I was like, wow. I had no idea those were that expensive. I mean, granted, I spend ridiculous amounts of money on swords and uniforms and helmets and whatnot. But but anyway, I mean, it, it is what it is. But I but yeah, she apparently uses it to um, again. She lives in Southern California apparently, and she uses it to track at like beaches where people are surfing. She uses it to track just make sure there's no sharks around. Right. It's very obscure. I I don't know. I was like, it, it kind of sounded. I, I don't know. If, if she'd been younger like a younger person i probably wouldn't have believed her but she seemed really sincere and it, but it's a very strange situation well yeah, the uh, the drones just in general the drones can be really expensive but the the one that you that you had in your yard i was like i was looking at him like that's a that's a 39.99 sharper image because it looked just like it and it could be claude if you lived near the beach if you mm -hmm. lived on the coast and somebody said to you hey I use this to track sharks. So if there's uh, surfers in the water, that way I can warn them so they can come in uh, and not right. get bit and killed. Hey, you know what? Excellent. That, I'll applaud that. Yeah, that's legit because in Florida, they have helicopters that will fly up and down the coast, making sure that anybody in the water isn't going to get you know attacked by sharks. Yeah. So shark attacks still happen, but they make an effort. Yeah. And a, a drone seems like a, a pretty cool way to do that. But yeah, you live in... <laughs> I live 500 miles from the nearest ocean. Right. So is she like <laughs> Very 500 strange. miles away in her house in Tucson, you know, check, checking out the, the San Diego beaches? I, I don't. That's what like, floored me. When you wrote that, I was yep. literally doubled over. I was laughing. <laughs> I couldn't help but post the funny memes and pictures and just I, I could have uh, kept going. I could have kept going. <laughs> And then finally I had to stop. I had to walk away. I put down the phone. I slowly backed away. <laughs> had a sandwich. Painted of something. Course, gotta have a sandwich. I, I had to uh, get away from it because if I didn't, I was just gonna keep going to the point where you've been like, Lord Scott's out of his mind here. He's he's killing me with this. That's Is why that I post stuff like that on Facebook because I never know. It says a lot about people what they respond to and how they respond. And it can be a picture of, of like, again, the drone, or it could be not even historical stuff, you know, what, whatever. It's just really funny. You really get a sense of people's personalities and, and senses of humor when, again, you, I, I post weird stuff 
sometimes, right. like random stuff. And I had a feeling you were going to react like that, honestly. Was, and that, like I said, other people were like, oh, people are watching you. You know, I'm like, people are checking out your stuff. I'm like, I doubt it, dude. I, but granted, it's social media. So there's going to be a lot of people out there that are, you know, in their basement at their grandmother's house when they're 70 years old. Uh, but well, I saw, I remember seeing some of the comments that I, there was a couple that was like, you know, the whole, you know, a spying on you and everything. Well, you know, I got to tell you, yeah. maybe it's, maybe it's you typed in, like, I can see, I can see, I can see the FBI checking me out. I could, I could see the CIA checking me out. I could totally. And the reason being is because when I go to Google, I type in Russians, Asians, you know, Turks, you know, that's true. Kurds. I'm doing research, you know, for my for gaming. Right. And I'm putting on all this stuff. You know, I do a lot of Russian. So I can I'm imagine kidding. they're like, okay, who's this guy? Is this guy a Putin flunky? Is he like a spy? And, <laughs> you know, is, you know, so I could, you know, I wouldn't be like, I'd be like, ah, okay, I, I get it. But you know. yeah, that's a good point, though. You know, because some of the stuff I search for, well, mainly it's British. So they're probably not really concerned about the British. But, uh, but even still, like, I, for me to think that I was that important, that the federal government would be like checking me out, I don't know. Right. I did have a top secret clearance with the with the military, so that was you know a long time ago. Well, I've had no secret clearance at all. It's usually like uh, it'll be a telephone, telegraph, telus, telescott. All right. So at this point, Claude's phone had an issue and it froze, and so <laughs> I was watching him on the Zoom for about a minute and a half in one pose. And I was like, okay, this ain't coming back. It's not coming back. So we disconnected uh, and we were able to get get hooked back up. Apparently his phone uh, got uh, overheated. <laughs> Here he is to explain. <laughs> so I'm not going to put the phone there anymore because, it, well, it was, in the, it was on the dashboard right in front of the steering wheel and it, uh, it literally, it like shut down because it said it was overheated. Oh, wow. You know, I, that's happened to me before. So, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, Florida, I'm, you're, that's because you're hot, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Smoking. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, actually, we're going to start jumping in on uh, on the uniforms and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so here's the, here's the premise. Okay. So, I have gotten a couple emails, and the emails were wondering where I found uniform colors for some of my more oddball, my, my oddball figures. And I started to think, you know, one of the okay. things that I think, uh, not everybody, but some people have a, an issue with going and buying a, a, a $19 book or a $20 book, yeah. you know, for, yeah. uh, for what, four or five colors. Exactly. And then, so they go to do the research and sometimes they don't know exactly what the research is, but also maybe they don't know kind of where some of these uniforms came from. Where they came from. Do you mean like the origins of the uniform? Like why it is, it looks a certain way? Well, like this, like, uh, like one of the questions I have, maybe you can answer this for the British, right? Uh-huh. Why red? Good question. So they're pretty much the only army in the world that's ever had, ever worn red uniforms. Well, there was a fur. So, well, I guess we start, I mean, this is, and I could talk about this for hours, but basically, so most, our concept of modern military uniforms basically started in, I'm going to say the 1600s. Okay. So the 17th century um, in Europe, uh, and specifically because European monarchs started having 
considered, monarchs started centralizing their power, I would say in the 1400s, 1500s, and by the early 1600s, early to mid 1600s, you had kings and kings and other monarchs with basically household troops, which is how basically how armies started. Other Before that, it had been feudal levies, which are just, I, I give you a title, you own a bunch of land, and when I need when I need an army, you're going to bring your guys with swords and hopefully swords, but if not, pikes and sticks right. and shovels and whatever. So but so the household troops of, of monarchs, and specifically the British monarchs, even up to, I would say, Cromwell, the, the red originates with, with the new model army of, of uh, Oliver Cromwell. That's a, it's also another reason that the British army isn't called the Royal Army. Like the Royal Navy is the Royal Navy, but as you notice, they don't call it, they don't call it the Royal Army because it was founded as an institution during the dictatorship of Oliver Cromwell. Okay. So it was not it was not royal. So hold on, hold on, hold on. So you got the Royal Artillery. Right. You got the Royal which, Navy. Which is correct. You got the Royal Air Force. Yep. You're right. Yeah. But you, but you do oh. not have the Royal Army because it was not, it was under Cromwell that it was basically, I wouldn't say invented, but it became a national institution, like a regular, formal, government-sponsored institution during the time of Cromwell. Okay. Now, so back to the red thing. And I, I hopefully some of the listeners will, I, I honestly don't know why, but Oliver Cromwell's army wore red. Prior to that, they had not really necessarily, they may have worn, uh, you know, the king's colors. Right. Or they, you know, carried the cross of the flag of St. George because of his England or the Scottish would have, you know, had their own heraldry. But, okay. but they, but they were not wearing red prior to, prior to Oliver Cromwell. So, and honestly, I think initially it wasn't even red. It was, uh, it was more like a, almost a rust colored. I think they call it matter red. So M-A-D-D-E-R. Not like I'm getting matter, but right. there's, there's some history behind the, the color matter red. But anyway, yeah, it's rust colored or was rust colored. If you look at some uniforms from the um, English Civil War, right. you'll see the royal or the parliamentarians wore uh, that color, especially the cavalry, as I recall. All right. So it became, so it started traditionally. Correct. Because then the next question is, okay, why is French blue? Why is Austrians white? And why are the Russians right. green? Oh, yeah. No. Well, again, so again, in Europe, again, right around the same time, 15, 1600, some countries a little bit later, maybe early 1700s, um, you had these nations forming, right? After the Treaty of Westphalia, right? they had the foundation of the modern European nation state system. And so countries, then you, people started thinking, and even still, I mean, honestly, up until the 19th century, probably in some of those countries, no one really thought of themselves as an Austrian or a Briton, or um, they would have thought of themselves maybe as a, you know, a Yorkshireman or a less so. I think in England probably was ahead of most other European countries, England and France, but were ahead of most other countries in Europe in terms of a sense of national identity, developed a national color. And certainly, I mean, under the, the kings before the French Revolution, the French were white as well. And French flags were white. And so maybe the green the green came uh, for the Russians came out of uh, Peter the Great. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Oh, by the way, just a totally off subject. I know you hate it when I do this, but... Oh, God, I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Have you, have you seen that? Have you watched that show? I think it's Netflix called The Great. Uh, For Catherine the Great? <laughs> yeah. No, I have not. Pretty, it's 
pretty cheesy. It's a soap opera, a faux historical soap opera. Right. But it's really fun. It's really fun to watch, and the costumes are amazing. So anyway, that was that was my little side thing. And honestly, if you're into Russian, some of the costumes aren't way off. Um, there's some pretty interesting stuff in there, honestly, in terms of. And this we're talking probably what uh, early 18th century. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because Catherine the Great, that was around. Uh, yeah. That was early 1830s. Yeah, 1700s. Yep. Yeah. But you you should check it out again, just visually. But it's but it's fun to watch, and the costumes are pretty great. The uniforms are great. The sets are amazing. Um. Anyway, yeah. So back to your thing. Yeah, national colors. Um. Now the Austrians. Not super clear on the Austrians why it would have been white. But yeah, they definitely wore white uniforms. And the French. So the French didn't wear blue until the revolution. Just the reason I bring that up, and this is this is, this is where the impetus for this comes from, is sometimes when you're looking, when you're doing some type of search, there, there's certain like keywords that you type in. I think you and I were joking uh, earlier about I might be on the uh, FBI list because I type in <laughs> Russian so many times in Google. <laughs> Somebody's like, "Who's what's this guy doing?" Right. Uh, you know, but when you do that, then you end up seeing a lot of the same and similar sort of deals. You know, I can right. speak for the Russian stuff from my experience and uh, in, in my experience in research is that, you know, yeah, I could say it started with uh, Peter the Great and it just kept going and going and going and going. And then it was just another another change or a little bit of a change and a little bit of a movement. But the Greens pretty much stayed until yeah. you got to the period of World War One, where everything needed to change for, for uh, camo reasons. If you look at mid 20th century Soviet full dress uniforms, they're that same color. Right. So it becomes that sort of national heritage, or well, and uh, you know another aspect of that. And again, my obviously my specialty, if whatever, if you want to call it that, is British. But so why why obviously the Royal Navy wore blue, but the Royal the Royal Marines wore red. Then you've got you know cavalry never wore red except for a very brief time in the 1830s when William the Fourth, who was the king, when he became king, he insisted that everyone wore red. So the cavalry had to turn in all their blue uniforms. And everybody had to wear red. So the cavalry wore red for I don't know five, six, seven, or eight years. But they hated it. You had French cavalry. You have French cavalry during the Napoleon. Yeah, I mean it's all. But here's another thing. Back to your your thing about yeah I, I i hate thinking that people have to buy all these books for like one or two images when because i think that makes a big difference um like if you just search like russian army uniform you're, it's obviously going to be all over the place but right if you like if you put it a time frame then it's going to narrow it down mm -hmm. but you're still and i think i do sometimes I'll, I'll i'll put in a really general search like i don't know yeomanry uniform for example uh and then i usually find really interesting uniforms Again, well, specifically for yeomanry in this case, but just in general, because again, no matter everyone's doing the same search, you're going to come up with all the same images, which you know can be a little dry. But anyway, sorry again, I went off on a tangent, Scott. Sorry, man. No, it's it's you're right about that. It's you, you once you go do your search, you put in your time frame, and you just keep going down and down and down and down that list. You're gonna something's gonna pop out. You highlight that. And then all of a sudden, now you're looking at a whole different list. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you, and you just keep going and going and going. And that's uh, sometimes that's where I found my my most interesting, you know, inspirations for yeah. miniatures. For me, the Zamburak, the camel gun. Yeah. I never knew that existed, you know, and then all of a sudden I was saying, well, you know, I want to do some Persians and see what we got going on. And I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm doing that deep dive, deep dive, deep dive. And all of a sudden it's like, well, hold on a second. There's a camel with a gun on his back. What what kind of space age <laughs> stuff is this? 
you know, and they come to find out, no, 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 it's real. It's like, well, what, what? And then a little more research and a little more research, a little more research. And sometimes the research is just as fun as sitting down to paint it. Oh, I, I, I honestly think it's probably half, it's probably 50%, 50% of the time I spend doing the research and 50% of the time I spend painting. Now, another thing I wanted to ask, because you're, you're so much more knowledgeable at this than I am, Tra- that transition uh, for the British from the red to uh, the the khaki. Uh-huh. One, what precipitated that? And two, when was that actual dated demarcation where it was like, okay, this is done and this is over? So roughly 1885 is pretty much the cutoff from red to khaki or scarlet. Um, there are instances, of course, just like anything else, where there were British units that wore khaki. The Corps of the Indian, Punjab Frontier Force, or the Corps of Guys in India on the Northwest Frontier wore khaki from their inception in 1846. Um, so arguably, they were the first British unit to wear khaki exclusively. They never wore anything but. Even their full-dress uniforms were khaki. Hmm. Um, but, but the rest of the British Army took... You had some interesting... Um, one of my favorite conflicts, actually, uh, is the... Second Anglo-Afghan War. So you see really interesting uniform combinations in that war. That was 1878 to 1880. See some really interesting, for example, they would wear the, the, the khaki frock or tunic, and then they would wear their, their, their full dress pants. So you have some great cavalry, uh, cavalry looks, for example, where they'll, they'll, yeah, they wore the khaki uniform on top with their, you know, their fabulous cross belt and, and pouch, sometimes full dress over the khaki, and then they wore the, you know, the, the dark blue pants with the bright yellow stripe or gold stripe. Um, you had a mixture that was, you know, again, it was a transitional period. And, and then, you know, the mutiny, I think, for me, fascinating in and of itself, but uniform-wise, um, and it really bothers, I think, a lot of the Victorian military society, which I love, don't get me wrong, but a lot of the, you know, the rules and regulations guys of the British Army don't like the mutiny because nobody really wore a uniform. <laughs> was that because the, it was the British East India Company, and then uh, oh no, I well partially, but the East India Company had arguably much the most fantabulous, fantabulous, the most spectacular military uniforms in history, in my opinion. But anyway, no, it was a lot because it happened. First of all, it was in India. Second of all, it was the summertime when they really weren't used to fighting. They you had a lot of troops coming, being diverted from. Basically, there was a bunch of British Army troops that were on their way to. China. They got diverted the last minute, so they were they didn't have the right uniforms. Um, you had the influence of what happened to the Crimean War when you had everybody fighting, you know, in full dress uniforms, which was ridiculous. Right. Um, and there was that was when a lot of reform started. So 1840s, 1850s, you know, again, the Crimean War and the mutiny really brought it home, I think, to a lot of people who had fought that trend in making uniforms more practical. But it's, I think it's finally got it reached a boiling point really again crimean war indian mutiny when it just it became obvious that with the new technology uh and and just for practical purposes it, it was soldiers had to have a more practical uniform to, to fight in right but yeah as far as the, the final i think 1885 most british army or military historians will say that was pretty much when the british officially stopped wearing red or for their and, and, and we're not talking about dress uniforms we're talking about the service actual no, day-to-day, no, no, no. day-to-day stuff Exactly. Well, even day to day, like in Britain on home service, they would still wear um, for undress and full dress and even probably maybe not marching order. But, yeah, they were still wearing uh, still wearing red and scarlet. Right. But not overseas in, you know, the not in Africa, not in Afghanistan, not in uh, Australia or wherever. Right. South Africa. Right. China. Right. They didn't. 
they didn't give up full draft permanently, and even that wasn't really permanently until uh, the First World War. And then after, after 1918, 1919, they... they uh, Obviously, during the World War One, everything became a dull. It was all dull. Yeah. Not not the, dull uh, like in, I'm not saying dull in that aspect. It was just boring, which, uh, sorry, it was. But <laughs> it was necessary. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah, necessary yeah, no, yep. to be that sure. way. Because yeah. the one thing you don't want to do as a British soldier is take your dress dress reds out and go walking down the middle of uh, no man's land. Guess what? Right. You're not going to get very far. Exactly. All right. So at this point, uh, his uh, I think his service, like, he left his service and it anyway so he froze again and uh when he came back we started talking but it was so choppy i just started it i started the rest of this interview just from the point where we can actually understand uh what we're both saying so here we go so i'm curious does the russian army or did the russian army rather or maybe they still do um did they have an equivalent of facing colors like the british army when you say facing colors the british British uniforms are, and their and each regiment's colors are distinguished by well, they're what they call the facing colors. So you have the red, but then you have the collar, the the, the oh, their, yeah, their yeah. regimental color. So the the collars and the cuffs would be a certain color. Uh, their their battle colors, their standard uh, regimental colors would be that color up to a certain point. I see. Um, so like you had yellow facings, green facings. Royal regiments had. Uh, Royal blue facing, for example. Right. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not quite sure because I, I know that um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the uniforms are all all the same all the way. Yeah. They, I mean, it's like, look, you're you're wearing a green uniform. That's it. You're you're done. And then what you what what gets added to that the the collar colors, I guess. Uh, you know, I'm not quite sure, but I do know that the there's certain regiments, and you saw this in Napoleonic, and I know they kept the they kept this up until a certain point. I want to say probably just after Crimea. I think 1860 was a was a turning point for the Russian military because they changed their they changed from muskets to rifles, the uh, Berlin rifle, and I think they did that with the and I think they changed their flags too because in Russian the, each Russian regiment had their own standard. Right, just like the British army. So, but I just was. They must but the British, but the British Army would have their own standard, but they also have the British flag. The, the, well, that wasn't. Yeah, it was called the Queen's or the King's colors. Yeah, right. Um, <clears throat> where it was Russians, it was like they had their regimental flag. That's what they had. Oh, interesting. At least uh, that's what I've seen. That's my research. I could be wrong. Somebody will correct me if I if I am, which is fine. Um, but did it, uh, bury, did it bear any similarity to the Russian national flag at the time? No. No, each flag had oh. a regiment. Yeah, it was a. Interesting. It had their the colors of the regiment uh, was on oh. there with the standard. The standard itself, so the 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 black eagle. I think it's a two headed eagle. That was uh, for the yeah. czar, and then the design outside of that was the regiment. And then the next regiment would have this would have a similar design, but it would be a different color with the same. Okay, so okay, so yeah, so, so the regiment did have their own colors then. Yeah, but I'm not sure if they had that on their uniform or not. Really interesting. Uh, it'd be really interesting to know that. All right. So at this point, this is the last break uh, in the interview. Uh, his phone, I think, died, and he had gotten home. And Claude got on his uh, his iPad, and then we started having a conversation. So you're going to notice the microphone difference uh, from the phone quality to the uh, the computer quality. So you're going to hear that, and uh, we continue on with our shenanigans. 
Um, now you're gonna make me that, go look. Now they're fascinating. You're gonna make me go look, aren't you? Oh, man, I knew I was gonna have a problem with this conversation. And well, plus with me driving around and the phone dying, and sorry, man. <laughs> no, you're fine. I know you really you didn't want to do it anyway, so now I'm just making it even worse. No, no. You know what? I love I love talking to you, Claude. I really do. Oh man, me too, Scott. Totally um, love it. And like I said, you know, I I said this off off air, but uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about uniforms is just so I could have Claude on again because <laughs> Claude's awesome, and he is Claude. the Bollywood of wargaming. Um, the, um so we talked about we talked about the the colors so if it, let's say if okay so somebody brand new to wargaming is searching out the british just the british and they just want to do basic british what, what let's say basic british 1880 you you just cut off right before, right when you said bon vivant um you know Sorry. i'm just saying if uh if someone's new to painting or new to wargaming and they want to do the British in 19th century. And let's say they, they're picking it. We're picking a date. Okay. We're, going to, we're going to pick uh, 1870. Okay. What are they typing in to the search? Just British Army 1870? I usually would do that. I usually do 1870s, like with an S, but. Okay. Uh, no, no. That, and, you know, I, I don't know why, but it seems to it seems to expand the search a little bit. And I usually, I would do, uh, I mean, well, for 1870, you're definitely looking at red uniforms, blue pants, black boots, white helmets for foreign, foreign service anyway. Right. They're almost uh, pretty much identical to the home service uniform, except for the helmet color. And actually, it was probably just covers at that point. They were even wearing spikes on their helmets in combat at that point. So for the most part. One of my favorite, this is going to be way back for everybody, Ral Partha. Oh, yeah. Ral Partha figures. When I was growing Beautiful. up, I used to be able to get a bunch of these. And one of my favorite figures was the natal mounted, the natal mounted police and you know, Natal. I had a bunch of Natal. Sorry, okay, the Natal. No, that's okay. <laughs> the Natal mounted police. They had the little spike on the helmet, <laughs> um, blue uniform, black hat. Yes, on the horse. Oh, and the figure was. They had the they had the uniform with the plastron too. The thing in the front with the two rows of buttons. Right. The uh, the figure itself was a just a brilliant, brilliant sculpt. I mean, it's too bad those aren't around anymore. But it's a nice twenty five mil. Those are legendary. I mean, honestly, I, I don't have any Ralpartha. I've never even, I honestly, I don't think I've ever, even seen them. Like, I've never seen them for sale. Uh, they, you, were they true, true 25 millimeter? They were true 25 mil, right to, right to the, yep, yeah, true 25 mil. They were, they were tough to be with a true 28 mil because the true 28 mil really made them look like hobbits. Yeah. Um, and you know the twenty mil or the one seventy second, they just towered over those two. So there was you had to you had to go right for the twenty five. You had to be stuck in that. The only things I could say is that I think that Foundry would probably have fit very well with the Ralpartha because even though they're twenty eight mil, they they tend to be on the small side. What about so my recent uh explosion into twenty five millimeter uh has been really illum- illuminating to me because I never had done anything except 54 mm-hmm. but then i i got i inherited all these i mean literally thousands of 25 millimeter mini figs mm. and they're really 25 millimeter because i've been i bought a few 172nd figures i bought just to see right. and then i bought a few what said what they said were 25 millimeter but they're not mini figs seem to be a different it's been hard for me to find british 
figures that fit with right in twenty in true twenty five millimeter. The, the minifigs, if I remember right, they were a little on the smaller side of twenty five yeah. mil. It's almost like you would almost have to look. You almost have to look for twenty mil to make it really I, work. What I've been doing is looking for minifigs again. Very not easy to find and not no. cheap. No, no. But I've managed to put together a decent little British army, but it's nothing. I mean, my French, I literally inherited like a Napoleonic or a Waterloo sized French army. So, but no British. But no British at all, just French? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, French, Bavarian, lots of Bavarians who, of course, weren't at Waterloo, but it's right. an enormous army. It would be great for like, I don't know, Austerlitz or something, but then you got to get the Russians and you got to get the Prussians. And, well, you could do the Battle of the Nations. You could just do. One a couple of skirmishes. I, I've got a decent sized British army now. I mean, oh, well, because that's good. but I mean, I've just been surprised to find that I didn't know that little those little tiny figures were so expensive. Oh yeah, no idea. Yeah, that's that's why sometimes I'll sit back and be like, okay, I'm gonna. So when you see like last uh, last show, I had gotten some feedback, a little bit of a like kind of biting feedback over or selling some of my my figures. You know, and I heard it's, that. It's like, yeah, it's like, well, you know, am I going to sit on them? You know, what am I going to do? You know, it's just like, if I'm not playing that or if I'm not going down that road, how, why have them sitting around? I have to tell you, I used to have a ton of raw Partha, a ton. Oh, dude. An absolute ton of them. Well, I, that's I, why you keep them. Well, this is uh, 15 years ago. No, I take that back. 20 years ago when I had... I had I gotten the raw Partha back in the late 70s, early 80s. I painted them up. I didn't paint them all up. I painted some up and I I just couldn't get my head wrapped around the painting at the time because my Were skill level was no, it was uh it was Pathans, British. Ooh, dude. Oh, dude. Um, Sudanese or uh Egyptian and some oh, uh, man. and some of the like I said, the Natal, you know, figures. Some really, I mean, really right. nice figures, but I just, like I said, I couldn't get my head wrapped around the painting. Oh, I'm so and bummed that you got rid of those. Yeah, me too. But on retrospect, it's like, ah, why'd I do that? But, you know, I said, ah, well, you know what? I'm going to eBay these suckers and I'm going to get a bunch of armor for my World War II, which I did, you know, because my same, uh -huh. same mindset is still this today. I'm going to sit on the these, I'm going to sit on them and what? Until one day, you know, in 15 years. Yeah. You know, well, I, I, it's almost like I want somebody else to have enjoyment. So, so yeah. So no, I, Oh, know, see, I'm the opposite. I, I, I'm totally the opposite, but, but good for you. You're a better man than I, sir. <laughs> well, now I've just banked, I've just banked it and I'm trying to decide if I want to jump into the Perry's Ottomans or I want to, want to call up Steve Barber and say, Hey, let's, uh, let's, let's bust into your Ottomans there. I'm not sure. You know, so they, now it's just kind of sitting in a bank, kind of hanging out. So. so, but you're, I mean, you're obviously still doing Central Asia. You're not switching. Oh, yeah, yeah, that. yeah. No, no, no. Okay. No, I just, I just said, you know what? It, the, the, my Afghans really weren't going to be involved that much in mm -hmm. the upper part of Central Asia. It really wasn't. Now the Herats, yeah, no problem. I ain't going to lose those. I'm not going to lose the Persians. I'm not going to lose my Russians. I'm expanding those. Um, and my Central Asians, my Bukharans, my Kievans, uh, Turkmen's, you know, like that. I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lose that. I'm expanding those as well. So so sitting on those or sitting on you know, I still have uh I still have some Indian mutiny that I I had purchased, some foundry. I got uh, a ton of it, not to do Indian mutiny, but I was gonna do a great game sort of like Ooh, yeah, uh, imagination type of great game. Yeah, you know, 
Anglo, I'm still sitting Anglo, on those. Anglo, Anglo Russian, where I always wanted to do, and you know Neil, you know Neil, right? Neil Reinwald. Yeah. Reinwald, the Colonel, um, the real Colonel. <laughs> <laughs> like the Neil. Neil's good stuff. Oh no, Neil. Well, his 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 Anglo Russian like great game war stuff is amazing. You know what it is in his his blog on that. Yes, so, love his blog. You got to give a shout out to that because that's honestly that's another thing. You know, in terms of uniforms, to get us back sort of to the subject, if you if you look on Facebook and and a lot of the toy soldier and wargaming Facebook groups have amazing resources. Oh yeah, in their files. Agreed. Um, for uniforms and for examples of, and in all different scales, but you know, most of it, let's face it, is 28 millimeter these mm-hmm. days. So it seems to be. Toy Soldiers and Dining Room Battles. That's his blog as well as the yeah. uh, Facebook thing. Yeah, his stuff is stellar. And and he's yeah. on point with his, like he can tell, he's going to tell you that, okay, well, this is just imagination. This is what I'm just rolling with because it's pulp or whatever. But then his, right. but his other, uh, his more historical stuff is on point. Amazing. Oh, boy. Well, he's done, he's done every, if you look back to on that blog and sometimes on the, on the Facebook group, but he's done every like civil war, he's done, uh, darkest Africa, he's done, um, central Asia or a great game. Um, he's a lot of good, and there's a lot of amazing, his uniform research is really stellar. So if you, again, if you need uniform help, that would be my suggestion is just to go on. There's also tons and tons and tons of really specific, really like geeky like uniform sites for the british army i know and i'm sure like probably for the russian army too and maybe not as many for the russian army but you know yeah so that's why i always get excited when i see something kind of oddball it's like whoa 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 whoa, what yeah what right you know um (laughs) because it's just like okay i can add that to my overall yeah you know all it needs to be is a little smattering yep doesn't need to be like you're not making a whole regiment or a whole division Right, you know, you make company of them, and then all of a sudden, it, it it and it it breaks up your whole unit that's on the board. You have painted units on on the war game table, but then also it's a little bit of a mix enough to where it doesn't look like you're playing a game of risk, but you're playing on a railroad table. <laughs> right. Well, and that that begs the question too. You know, there's a um another fabulous my one of my top three favorite uh, Facebook groups about war gaming is the No Stress. The No Stress Miniatures mm-hmm. page. Um, Bill Molyneux is, first of all, he's like, he was the main guy really that got me into wargaming in the first place. So we have him, him to blame? Derek. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there you go, Bill. We're blaming him, you, bro. Him and Derek Barton. And Derek and Bill um, really were just like so open and welcoming. And, and there wasn't, I mean, and Howard Whitehouse too, I got to say, major shout out to Howard, but that's yeah. a whole different you, we could do you could do a whole podcast on a gentleman's war in my we could, opinion we could do a but, whole month yeah seriously mm-hmm. but like bill's files on no stress miniatures wargaming page um tons of first of all a lot of good rule sets for free and also um a lot of good uh uniform reference guides um so yeah but but i mean i have a huge collection of books Again, ninety nine percent on the British Army, but but books can be expensive, and you know they take up a lot of room. And um, another thing is, you know, honestly, like I I'd be happy to. I mean, I probably shouldn't put this out on the podcast, but no, why not? I mean, I've got tens of thousands of images all categorized in my yeah. on my database or whatever in my files. So if anybody needs help, I'm I'm super willing to like give advice. Uh, and it's you know it's not like. 
I'm not saying I'm an expert because if I do, I'll get people knocking on my door with pitchforks, but uh, I'd be happy to help if anyone wants to, you know, look me up on Facebook and I, I, anyone has any questions, especially about British army uniforms and Indian army uniforms too, but Mm -hmm. I'm happy to help, you know, I uh, always willing to share my files and my images and And actually if you just, if you just, if you just friend uh claude yeah. on uh, the facebook you'll get the daily shot of him in his uniform you just do it like <laughs> That's that right. oh i gotta make uh, that uniform Here, hold on don't move claude and, uh, i'll paint <laughs> oh i'm so excited right now because my uh my bengal light cavalry jacket is on its way now that was I'm okay just... now hold on a second because i you you shot me a picture uh of it yeah in, in messenger describe yeah. describe it and the colors because this is we're talking uniforms this is the one this is specifically kind of like what i'm talking about where all of a sudden some oddball comes out of nowhere so just <laughs> so describe it colors and everything go ahead so it's a it's a short hussar type uh originally called the police p-e-l-i-s-s-e it's a short it looks like a mess jacket if if that's if one's familiar with that um and it's the uniform of this in, in particularly is kind of generic light cavalry from like the mid 1790s up to mid to late 1790s up until probably honestly the 18 late 1850s Indian Mutiny um, with many variations in the in the style and the cut and the collar and the but it's 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 French gray. The, the body of the jacket is French gray, which is actually a light blue. And then it has red facing, so red collar and cuffs, pointed cuffs, uh, typical British pointed cuffs. And then it's heavily laced with silver, silver lace, three rows of silver buttons on the front. All uh, it's crazy. I mean, it's like and and, I, and I'll be honest and I'm going to I'm going to be honest. I, my inspiration for it. Well, besides the fact that I'm obsessed with light cavalry, British in particular, was from the, uh, I think it was the last Sharps show, um, the bad guy, the Russian Dragomirov, the, right. the Russian light cavalry officer. It's, yep, that's yep. basically, it's his, it's his uniform, basically. <laughs> totally ridiculous, but so, I don't care. No, no, I no. no. So when somebody, because when somebody says, oh, British are red. Right, except the cavalry. Except they're they're not all red, and that's nope, that's the thing. Where, and so that's that was kind of the premise here. It's just sort of like, okay, yeah, you can, you know, if if we figure out why the initial color or the base color is the way it is, then right. you're going to have offshoots. Oh, huge, yeah, tons of options, especially again, depending on the period. Mm-hmm. If you're doing Napoleonic Wars, you can go crazy. Yeah, so I think that's probably what scares me the most about doing anything Napoleonic. Yeah, well, your Sikh Wars, same thing. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Basically the same uniforms. I mean, not the same uniforms, mm-hmm. but close. And, but you've got, you've got uh cavalry with all, and you've got Indian cavalry, you've got British cavalry, you've got crazy Sikh uniforms. Sikh uniforms are amazing mm-hmm. by the way. Right. Uh, and you know, very, there's tons of information out about, especially, the, I mean, not to go off on a thing about the Sikhs, but which you've done a lot and I really appreciate but no, the, the uniforms were just amazing and very regulated and extremely recent, more recently were very well researched by some of your guests uh, in particular. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no. So yeah, red, red for the infantry, but not for everybody. And again, depending on the conflict, no red at all, you know? So, <laughs> okay. So at this point, uh, our conversation doesn't conclude, but uh, the uh, Zoom 
that I was taping on uh, crashed. So even though him and I were talking, uh, the rest of the everything else we talked about, it's it's now in the ghost in the machine. It's it's in some somewhere in here. I have no idea where it is. But anyway, so uh, but it's always great talking to Claude. Claude uh, Bailey, Wargaming's very own bon vivant, the best dressed man in her hobby, and the friar of 54 millimeter. I always love having uh, Claude on uh, just to chat in general. It really doesn't matter what we chat about. I I kind of made an excuse uh, to talk about uh, uniforms and the colors of uniforms just so I could have him on. Uh, Claude, I appreciate uh, you coming on. And uh, coming up on Shot and Shield, going to take a look at the war game rules called Ram Anything Painted Gray by Prior Alred Glidden for JuniorGeneral.org. That's next on Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. I hear the conditions in your army are appalling. Well, I'm sorry, but those are my conditions, and you'll just have to accept them. Shot and Shield is brought to you by Dr. Harold's Hobby Supplies, a one-stop shop for tools, paint, glue, brushes, wargaming bases, display stands, model trees, static grass, dice, dice trays, and terrain materials, and even some miniatures. New items added every week. Dr. Harold's is a new dropship site, and it's growing. See the growth at drherald.myshopify.com. That's drherald.myshopify.com. Dr. Harold's Hobby Supplies, a proud sponsor of Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. Honey, ho, pip, pip, bum, burners, your uncle. In this episode of Shot and Shield, I wanted to look at a rule set for naval conflict. 19th century naval conflict. I've been looking all over for something that I really like. It's uh, tough without spending like $5,000. You feeling me? So I'm looking for a rule set that's free. And in my hunt, I found a set of rules called Ram Anything Painted Gray by Prior Allred Glidden. And it is a set strictly meant for the Battle of Lissa, 1866. Now we're talking about Austrians versus Italians during the Austro-Prussian War, which it fits a lot of priorities. One, it's in the 19th century, and that's what I'm looking for. Two, it involves ironclads and wooden ships. Boom, I'm in. Sat down, took a look at the rules, and this is what I found. The rule set is only like five pages. It's easy. And you can download it at uh, juniorgenerals.org or or I also have it linked in this episode's description. It starts out with a historical summary of the Battle of Lissa and the list of ships in the Austrian and Italian fleets, both ironclads and wooden ships, which is really, really nice. There's also a link to the paper ship representations if you so desire. You decide you want to do that, rock on with your bad self. There is a very, very, very basic map that shows the starting deployment positions for each fleet and where the island of Lissa is in relation to where they start. There's a set of ship cards where you keep track of ammo and damage. And the rules themselves are really simple. A sequence of play, movement, ramming, firing, ranges, and a hit chart. Now, I did a quick play the other day using popsicle sticks. I know it may not sound really, really you know, cool or anything, but but you got to do what you got to do because I'm not going to spend $5,000, you know, on a bunch of stuff and not know if I'm really going to like it. So I busted out the popsicle sticks just for the feel, get the game flow down, and it was fun. And I have to tell you, I'm, I'm probably going to use these rules, these free ones that are really, really basic 
going forward for uh, naval stuff and, and le- unless something comes up that's uh, fantastic. But it had a really good game flow. And you know what? I'm probably going to do this. I am probably going to do the uh, Battle of Lissa, 1866. I'm going to make my own ships. You know, I got pictures of what they're supposed to look like, and I can make them the scale I want, so I don't necessarily need to go and buy a bunch of ships. Or I might go ahead and use these rules for like the Battle of Sinope or some sort of naval action in the lakes of Central Asia. And this is cool because I have, like I said, I've been looking for a set of 19th century uh, naval game rules for quite a while. I wanted them quick. I wanted them easy. Uh, The fact that it's free is a total bonus. I like that uh, it has a link to the paper ships. Now the paper ships are a bit cartoony, but they do give a good representation of what each ship kind of looked like. If I really buckle down and I really decide to do this, all I got to do is take the paper ships, take a look at them, and then build, you know, a balsa wood fleet, no problem, uh, using those as sort of like the blueprint. After that's done, then what do I need to do? I need to get a, a mat or a tablecloth, a, a blue tablecloth, right? And maybe a little island that has the semblance of Lissa. So once again, the rules are called Ram Anything Painted Gray by Prior Alred Glidden. And they can be found at uh, juniorgeneral.org or on a link in this episode's description. You'll find it there as well. I hope you take a moment, take a look at it, maybe even get a chance to play a little bit and uh, see if you enjoy it as well. Now, with that said, still ahead, going to answer your emails next on Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. You don't think I, too, dream of peace. You don't think I, too, yearn to end this damn dirty job we call soldiering? Frankly, no. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of... Oh, oh, hello. You just caught me, famous podcaster and influencer Duke Scott, reading in my study. You know what? Since you're here, let me tell you about a great way to connect with... uh, our Shot and Shield gaming community. It's through social media. On Facebook, the Shot and Shield Podcast Wargaming Group, where you can find a lot of info about this podcast, but also get wargaming and painting advice from our member experts. You can even learn how to dress like a true 19th century hero from friend of the podcast, Claude Bailey. If you have any questions or comments, you can also hit us up on Twitter, at Shot and Shield, or email me at shotandshield at gmail.com. When you get to the Facebook group, the Twitter feed, or even the YouTube page, like, subscribe, and if you feel inclined, share what you like. Now, if you'll excuse me, Charles Dickens awaits. Shot and Shield is a production of the Experience 13 Podcast Network. This is Shot and Shield. Oh, damn. Thank you for listening to Shot and Shield. Once again, Shot and Shield is uh, sponsored by Dr. Harold's Miniatures and Collectibles. The site is not very pretty. It's not a, it's not a good-looking site. But Dr. Harold, he invests in his stock, not in the look of his website. Visit them now, drherald.myshopify.com. Right now, guess what? We're going to check some emails. Germany calling, London calling, Moscow calling, Washington, D.C. calling, Peking calling, Sydney calling. <laughs> message for you, sir. It's time to answer some emails from all around the world. And I'm not sure if you hear that in the background. That's my cat. 
Uh, Susie, uh, she's letting me know that she's hungry. <laughs> Susie, you're going to have to wait. I got some emails. So let's do this. Uh, okay, so this first one's from Derek in Minneapolis. And Derek writes, Duke Scott, I love the show. I've been inspired by your work. You've posted on Twitter. I am looking to join you in Central Asia and have been looking at rules and miniatures to pick up. I decided to use the men who would be kings for the rules, but for the miniatures, I'm having a tough time. I wanted to try Ascari, but I heard that you're not a big fan of these. Is there another company where I could pick up Central Asians and Russians? Also, I heard that uh, you had adapted your figures to be used for Blood and Steel. I use Blood and Steel for U.S. Civil War. Could you post your adaptions? I like Blood and Steel, but I don't see how you could make it work for Central Asia. Once again, I really enjoy the show. Thank you very much, Derek, in Minneapolis. Uh, okay, uh, so let's talk about Ascari miniatures for just a second. Uh, actually, the, no, Ascari, they have some really good uh, miniatures. I just picked up uh, uh, some Jingle uh, crew guns uh, from them because those sculpts are really, really nice. Uh, it's, I will say it's hit or miss with Ascari, so you're going to have to really take a look at um, what uh, you, in their pictures, you're going to have to take a look at each of the sculpts to see if that's something you can work with. It might not be a bad idea for you to, you know, pick up a sample of one of uh, the series that you're looking at to see if you want to invest uh, more in it. And I would do that with any company. Um, also, uh, Tiger Miniatures uh, has uh, some Central Asians that I've been uh, investing in uh, pretty highly uh, recently. Their uh, Russians are just as good as the Ascari. They work, uh, they work really good together because I use both of them. Uh, so that's just something to think about as far as uh, those troops go. I'm sure there's others, but not that I've used. You're choosing the men who would be kings for the rule set. Uh, you know, that's a fine rule set. You're not going to go uh, really wrong with anything that, uh, that uh, Osri's putting out when it comes to rules because they're, they're pretty basic. And you know, the good thing about the men who would be kings is it's really adaptable. You shouldn't have too much, too much of a hard time getting your field forces put together and on the, on the playing table and then use that rule set. As far as blood and steel, you know, look, blood and steel is a skirmish game. And if you're playing skirmish games, then they are very adaptable. So I'm, you know, if you don't see how you can make those adaptable for Central Asia, just think about you're, you're talking about just a skirmish game. That's it. From there, it's just nuance. As far as posting my adaptions, I'm still making a few uh, test adaptions, and I want to test out a few different things. I had uh, tested out uh, the Zamburak, which is the camel gun, which I tried in a game test, and I found that it wasn't as effective as a regular artillery piece. So I'm actually testing out to have three, a battery of three Zamburaks with their little swivel guns, little falconets, and so that's I'm kind of testing that a little bit. So once I get those adaptions, then I'll get with Edgar and Damien over at Blood and Steel and uh, we'll kind of work it out and maybe I'll post those. But uh, Derek, I appreciate uh, the comments and I appreciate you loving the show. Uh, from Seth in Oklahoma and listening on Spotify. Thank you, thank you. Um, I wanted to send you a thank you for your last show about the Canadian Mounties. My son Jared is fascinated by the Mounties and has decided to jump into wargaming. I've wargamed my whole life and I've never, and I never had thought to game this. Jared has uh, tried to wargame with me but never cared 
about U.S. Civil War or the Boer War. Now we're going to war game Mounties together. Thank you. Seth, that's excellent. And the idea of gaming the Canadian Mounties is really cool because you can either do uh, use pulp rules or you can do some some type of skirmish rules. And uh, it shouldn't be that difficult. And so I, I, I'm happy for you and your son going to be uh, jumping into uh, Canadian Mounties. That's huge. Thank you very much. And I appreciate you listening to the show. Uh, this uh, email is from Butler in Portland. And I'm not sure if this is Portland, Oregon or Portland, Maine, but it's Portland. Uh, Butler writes, Scott... Like you, I am looking forward to Ridley Scott's movie about Napoleon. Did you see the news that Ridley Scott has a four-hour version that he wants to release? What do you think about that? I think that's long, and I think that's a lot of bathroom stops. That's what I think. Uh, four hours of Napoleon. If it's uh, if it's a bunch of more, if it's more battle scenes, if it's more Austerlitz, it's more Bordino, and it's more Napoleon in Egypt, and it's more later Napoleon and more Waterloo, I'm all in. But if it's more talky, talky, talky and lovey, 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 I don't care. If you really want to do something, Ridley Scott, you just cut it all down to just the battle scenes. I'm there. I'm all in on that. But the talky, talky, lovey, lovey stuff, don't care. Butler, I think you're going to be in the same boat with me. Uh, let's see. This uh, Our last email today is from Rafjani in Poon, India. Rafjani writes, uh, Scott, my favorite colonial type movie is Zulu Dawn. It's a great retelling of the events and why they happened. And it is thoroughly star studded. If you had to pick just one colonial type movie, what would it be? Rafjani, I would say that uh, it's going to be 55 Days of Peking. Pretty much for the same reason you, uh, you like Zulu Dawn. It's star studded. 55 Days at Peking, you got Charlton Heston, you got Ava Gardner, you got David Niven. That alone, I'm, I'm in. The uniforms you're talking, uh, the costumes are just excellent. The, the action sequences are fantastic. So uh, also, you have a sense that something's, even if, if you didn't know history and you were just watching this as a movie, you would sit there and go, ooh, are they going to get out? Are they going to get out? Are they going to be okay? So for me, uh, Rav Johnny, it's 55 Days at Peking. Uh, I thank you very much, Rough Johnny, uh, Butler, Seth, and Derek for your emails today. Still ahead, we're going to close out the show with an audio discovery, and that's for you next on Shot and Shield. This is Shot and Shield. Oh, oh, honor is satisfied. God clearly preserves you for greatness. From the land of the audio to the world of the visual. The Shot and Shield podcast is on YouTube. I use YouTube for supplementary information, such as watch-along videos, documentaries of interest, movies that I find that uh, best represent colonial or 19th century inspirations or gaming, and eventually video from interviews that I've uh, already done and that you've heard on the podcast. Just search out, in parentheses, Shot and Shield. You got to put the parentheses in there, parentheses, Shot and Shield, and parentheses, and you'll find it on the YouTube. There's also a link on the podcast info page. So check it out and subscribe to Shot and Shield on YouTube. This is Shot and Shield. Good luck against those elephants. Up to 
to mighty London came an Irishman one day. As the streets are paved with gold, so everyone was gay. Singing songs of Piccadilly, Strand and Leicester Square. Till Paddy got excited, then he shouted to him there. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary, to the sweetest girl I know. Goodbye, Piccadilly, farewell, Leicester Square. It's a long, long way to Tipperary, but my heart's right there. It's a long way to Tipperary. This episode of Shot and Shield, I present you with another archaeological discovery from the vintage audio tomb. Obviously, I keep uh, this as 19th century as possible, and in the 19th century, one man was on everybody's lips. He epitomized what it was like to live life in the 19th century. That man, Sherlock Holmes. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's creation of the Master Detective is perfect for Shot and Shield. And not only this, but also everybody has their favorite Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, Basil Rathbone, Benedict uh, Cumberbatch, Robert Downey Jr., Ron, uh, Ronald Howard, the original Ron Howard. Uh, so many have played this character. My personal favorite, Jeremy Brett, who, in my opinion, nails Sherlock Holmes and the 19th century attitude to perfection. Also, out of all the stories, I didn't want to just choose 
one of the obvious ones. I wanted to have one with a little bit of military flair to it, and I found the perfect one. It stars uh, John Stanley as Sherlock Holmes and Ian Martin as Dr. Watson, and it's called The Adventure of the Bruce Partington Plans. This week's story, The Adventure of the Bruce Partington Plans. Well, Dr. Watson, I see you're hard at work on your memoirs, as usual. Uh, what adventure are you working on tonight? I call it The Adventure of the Bruce Partington Plans, Mr. Harris. Incidentally, did you know that Holmes had a brother, Mycroft Holmes? Mycroft Holmes? No, I didn't. <laughs> I met him for the first time in this adventure. A great man, Mycroft Holmes. As prominent in his own sphere as my comrade was in his. And he appeared at a time when the fate of the Empire hung in the balance. And now, Dr. Watson, what's this adventure of the Bruce Partington plans all about? What are the plans? All in good time, my dear Mr. Harris, all in good time. If my memory does not fail me, this adventure began in November of 1895. A dense yellow fog had settled down over London, so that from our windows at Baker Street, it was impossible to see the loom of the opposite houses. It was on this white shrouded night that a cab came out of the midst and stopped just outside of Woolwich Arsenal. A woman descended and paid off the driver. There you are, Cabby. I say... Oh, who are you? I'm sorry if I was a Cadogan. Oh, Cadogan, darling. I... Oh, it's impossible to recognize anyone in this beastly fog. I was afraid that some stranger was trying to... <laughs> but it is you, and... Well, of course I... it's I, Violet. Now, will you stop chattering? Cadogan! Oh, forgive me, darling. Nerves. On edge, I'm afraid I... What's the matter, darling? Uh, matter? Oh, something's worrying you. You're, you're nervous, upset. You you seem afraid of something. What is it, Cadogan? It's it's nothing, nothing. You've never worked this late at the Arsenal before, Cadogan. We'll be fortunate if we get to the theater at all. Theater? Oh, I am sorry, Violet. I, I can't make it tonight. Can't make it? But, Cadogan, we've tickets for the theater and... Oh, but something's and... come up, something something urgent. Uh, Violet, uh, you you had better take a cab. Go, go home. Cadogan... Why do you keep staring at the arsenal? For heaven's sake, darling, what's this all about? I can't tell you. Not even your own fiancé? No. I see. I know, darling, I know. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking I don't trust you, but but this is extremely confidential. A matter of state of government. And unless I... Violet. Yes? Look over there. Do you see a man in a bowler hat and a waterproof just coming out of the entrance? Why, yes, but... What... I've got to follow him. I can't afford to lose him. Sir Duggan, what Goodbye, about... Goodbye, Violet! Heavy! Heavy! Where to, sir? Follow that cab just ahead. Don't lose it in the fog. Oh, that's a rum go in this beast suit, Governor. Might as well ask a bloke. There's a print in it if you hang on. Up in, Governor. We'll have to be quick. Hey, 
trip, Governor. There's your coach there in front of Woolwich Station. Your bloke we need to take the underground, seems like. You are, Cabby. Ticket clock. Yes, sir. Did the gentleman in the bowler hat and waterproof just come through the passenger tunnel here? Yes, sir. Just ahead of you. Bought a ticket and just stepped aboard that train. Quick, give me a ticket. That too. Anywhere. Uh, the station for London Bridge. Only hurry or I'll miss that train. Yes, sir. Brother Mycroft will arrive here at Baker Street in half an hour, Holmes. Yes, Watson. I'm in receipt of an urgent telegram from Mycroft. He's coming straight from his government office at Whitehall to seek my counsel on a most serious matter. Indeed? On what serious matter? The Cadogan West affair. The Cadogan West affair? What's that? Well, read the newspapers, Watson. If you peruse the Daily Telegraph there on the chair, you'd find that last night a junior government clerk named Cadogan West met his fiancée, a Miss Violet Westbury, for an evening at the theatre. Well, I mean to say, what of it? With no explanation whatever, he darted off into the fog in pursuit of some mysterious quarry. And early this morning, he was found dead. You mean murdered? Precisely, Watson. His lifeless body was found lying in a tunnel of the underground a few feet from the track just beyond Allgate Station. Good Lord. Curiously enough, there was no railway ticket found on him. You uh, consider that significant, Holmes? Quite. But even more significant is the fact that my brother Mycroft seems to have taken an intense personal interest in this case. You know, Watson, my brother Mycroft has a unique and confidential status in the inner cabinet and enjoys the counsel of both the Prime Minister and the Queen in delicate matters of empire. Then why is he so concerned with the death of an obscure junior clerk? Patience, my dear Watson, patience. I'm a criminologist, not a clairvoyant. Only Mycroft can answer that question. <laughs> My dear Sherlock, I have never seen the Prime Minister so upset. And the Admiralty is in a state of near panic. As for myself, in view of the present delicate situation in Siam, it is most awkward that I leave the office for a moment. Then let us arrive at the kernel of this affair at once, Mycroft. Why is Whitehall so concerned about the death of Cadogan West, the minor clerk? Because the fate of England, and indeed the Empire itself, may hinge upon a quick and early solution of this regrettable affair. Good heavens, sir. As serious as that, is it? Indeed, Dr. Watson. Pray continue, Mycroft. You have heard of the, uh, the Bruce Partington plan. Vaguely. Uh, some plans concerning a new nautical machine, are they not? Specifically, gentlemen, they are the designs for a new and revolutionary nautical car called the submarine, which can be propelled under water. Submarine, huh? Extraordinary. Dash it, Holmes, the next thing you know, they'll conjure up some devilish scheme to fly through the air. Please do not interrupt, Watson. Proceed, my conscience. Last night, the Bruce Partington papers, ten of them in all, disappeared from a vault in Woolwich Arsenal. Aha. Uh-huh. And was this vault easily accessible? No. Those plans were the most jealously guarded of all government secrets. Only three men had keys to the vault. Their names? Sir James Mortar, the government expert and official guardian of the plans, who's fallen gravely ill over this matter, the senior clerk, Mr. Sidney Johnson, and Cadogan West, the, the junior clerk. Go on. But when the body of young West was discovered, seven of the papers were found on his person. 
The other three papers, the vital, important ones, were missing. Naturally, the newspapers did not carry this information. Hmm. Interesting, Mycroft. Very. Perhaps young West stole the plans, offered them for sale to some foreign power, and later was murdered for his pains. Perhaps, Dr. Watson. At any rate, we fear the worst. Sherlock, you see the consequences of all this? Naturally. If some foreign power gains possession of the Booth Partington data, the sea power of Britain might well suffer a mortal blow. Exactly. Sherlock, you must drop everything and devote your talents to this. Those papers must be recovered. This mystery must be solved at any cost. Very well. Under the circumstances, we'd better begin at once. Come, Watson, with the office. Where to, Holmes? To Woolwich Arsenal. I should like a few words with this senior clerk, Mr. Sidney Johnson. You say the key to that vault never left your possession last night, Mr. Johnson? That is correct, Mr. Holmes. That is entirely correct. And you left Woolwich Arsenal here at five o'clock? I did. I most certainly did. I left it closing time as usual. Young Cadogan West also possessed the key, did he not, Mr. Johnson? He did, Dr. Watson. Both he and Sir James Walter, our superior. Mr. Johnson. Yes, sir? Do you think Cadogan West stole the Bruce Partington papers from the vault? I, I make no accusation, Mr. Holmes. But, my dear sir, you must have an opinion. I repeat, I make no accusation. And I cannot account for young West's actions. I can only say that he was unreliable, headstrong, and eternally complaining about his small remuneration here. I see. Now then, Mr. Johnson, before we leave, I should like to have a look at those plans. I'm sorry, Mr. Holmes, but that's impossible. Indeed? Why? Because the originals were stolen. The originals, eh? Very interesting, Mr. Johnson. Quite. This puts a new aspect on the matter. Come, Watson, we must pay a visit to Sir James Walter's home at once, the third and last owner of a key to this ransacked vault. But Mycroft has informed us, Holmes, that Sir James is gravely ill. True, but his brother, Colonel Valentine Walter, who's always been very close to Sir James, may be able to provide us with some necessary information. Well, Holmes, I must confess I'm completely confused. Are you indeed, Watson? Yes, we seem to be no nearer to a solution than On when... the contrary, my dear fellow, we are. We are? We are indeed. It's true, every fresh advance we've made only reveals a fresh ridge beyond. And yet we've certainly made some appreciable progress. Note first that the original plans were stolen instead of being copied. Yes, but what was... Note, that... too, that no railway ticket was found on the body of young Cadogan West, who was presumably thrown from a metropolitan train. Oh, there's Sir James Walter's house, Watson, at the end of the lane. Look here, Holmes. Sir James has been a high authority in the government for 20 years. He's unimpeachable, absolutely. Perhaps. But one cannot weave a cloth without first picking up all the threads. <laughs> Watson. A shot, Holmes. Yes. And it came from Sir James's house. Quick, cabby. Get us to that house with all possible speed. <laughs> Open up. Open the door. Someone's coming, Holmes. What is it? What? Colonel Valentine Walter? Yes, yes, what do you want? My name is Sherlock Holmes. This is Dr. Watson. We um, heard a shot a moment ago, Colonel. We were on our way to see Sir James. I'm afraid that's impossible. What do you mean? Come out with it, man. What do you mean? My brother, Sir James, just shot himself. <laughs>
And now, let's return to our story, Dr. Watson. Well, Mr. Harris, we entered Sir James Walter's house and found him dead. A revolver by his side. Colonel Valentine was greatly grief-stricken and explained that since the Bruce Partington plans were Sir James's responsibility, his brother had killed himself over the scandal of their loss. At any rate, Holmes and I didn't linger long. Time was passing swiftly. The fate of the Empire was possibly in the balance. Uh, what did you do next, Dr. Watson? We approached the Underground Railway authorities. A ticket seller at Woolwich Station had indeed seen young Cadogan West in hot pursuit and testified that young West bought a ticket for London Bridge. After that, Mr. Hodkins, the railway superintendent, led us to the spot in the tunnel where the body had been found. So this point in the tunnel is just beyond Allgate Station, Mr. Hodkins? That's correct, Mr. Holmes. But it appears that young West had a ticket only as far as London Bridge. There was no ticket for Allgate found on his body. How do you account for that, Mr. Hodkins? I don't know, Mr. Holmes. I don't understand why he stayed in the train as far as Allgate after passing London Bridge. Quite. Young West did not have a ticket for Allgate. Therefore, he was not in the train. What? Moreover, he was bruised only on the head, not on the body. And no blood was found on the spot where he fell. That would indicate he was killed before he entered the tunnel. Holmes, you say young West was not even in the train? I infer, Watson, that he was on the train, but not in it. On the train, but not... Dash it all, I must be obtuse, but it's all confoundedly unclear to me. I agree with Dr. Watson, Mr. Holmes. I make no sense of it. Ah, fortunate circumstance, gentlemen. There's one of our metropolitan trains coming into this tunnel. It will serve to illustrate my theory perfectly. Get a step back against the tunnel wall, gentlemen. Oh, yes, right you are. Thank you. Note, Watson, the train is on a straight track and it proceeds smoothly and steadily. Aha, now the train's moving around this curve. Did you notice how it shook and swayed as it rounded the curve, Watson? Yes, Holmes, I did. But what the devil difference does that make as far as Cadogan West is An immense difference, my dear fellow. It proves that Cadogan West's dead body was riding on the roof of a railway carriage here in the tunnel. What's that, Mr. Holmes? You mean to say someone placed the corpse on the roof? And... I do indeed, Mr. Hodkins. The corpse rode for a considerable distance. But when it reached this point, the rocking and jolting on the train threw it to the ground. Yet there were no bruises on the body, which is natural enough. Dead bodies do not bruise. Good heavens, it seems incredible. Mr. Hodkins, is there a point farther on from Allgate here where the trains pause before they proceed? Why, yes, Mr. Holmes, but... Uh, Please answer my question. Well, there's a point in the tunnel at Kensington where the Metropolitan train stopped for the signal. Kensington, eh? Excellent, Mr. Hodkins, excellent. Come, Watson, we've work to do at Whitehall. Whitehall? Precisely. I'm in urgent need of some vital information from my brother, Mycroft. Sherlock, you ask me for a list of foreign agents known to have residences in London at present. I have a highly confidential list here. Capital, Mycroft. I have a very simple query to make. Yes? Do any of these foreign agents live in or near Kensington? Only one, but he's out of the country at present. His name and address? Uh, Hugo Oberstein, 13 Caulfield Gardens, Kensington. Aha. Holmes, by what line of deduction? All you... in good time, my dear Watson, all in good time. Sherlock, is there any progress? The Admiralty is in urgent emergency meeting with the Prime Minister, and at this very moment, 
My presence is awaited by the inner cabinet. Be of good heart, Mycroft. We're relentlessly pursuing our quarry, and we can hope to hold him in his lair in a very short time. Oh, then I have no alternative but to rely on you, Sherlock. I wish you all success in this matter. And now, if you'll excuse me... Of course. Watson, we'd better proceed to Baker Street at once. Baker Street? Right. We'll need a jemmy, a dark lantern, a chisel, and your trusty service revolver. And after that, Holmes? After that, a visit to 13 Caulfield Gardens, Kensington. Well, here we are, Watson. 13 Caulfield Gardens. The home of our foreign agent, Mr. Hugo Oberstein. It's pitch dark inside, Holmes. Yes. Our friend is no doubt on the continent at this moment. Come up and let's try the door. We've some prowling to do. It's locked as I expected. Watson. Yes, sir. You have your service revolver handy? At the ready. Good. Keep a sharp eye out. Get back against the wall, Watson. Quick, someone's approaching. Holmes. The police. The Bobby on his beach, Watson. Well, we get too close. You must realize this is illegal, Holmes. Of course, of course. Lestrade and his official police would frown on this procedure. But the stakes are too high and time too short to quibble about legalities now. Step to one side a moment, Watson. Keep your revolver handy. And with a jemmy, the lower door. There we are, Watson. Now, let's go in. Holmes, what's that? A metropolitan train, Watson. The tunnel's just at the back of this building. And if I'm not wrong, the train will come to a stop here. Ah, just as I thought. Now, the window. This must be the window. Quick, Watson, the lantern. Right you are, Holmes. Now we'll raise the window and have a look. Ah, observe here on the windowsill, Watson. Good Lord. Bloodstained. Quite. The Duggan West was led here and murdered. Yes, but my dear Holmes, how was he placed on top of that railroad carriage? Elementary, my dear Watson, elementary. You've only to use your eyes. Look below. You'll note that there is a flight of stone steps leading down from the house to that passageway. But that passageway is in reality the roof of the railway tunnel. You'll observe also that there's a large ventilating window in the roof of that tunnel. If you look carefully, you'll see the top of a railway carriage as it waits the signal to proceed just under that ventilating window. Ah, yes, I see. In brief, the murderers carried the body of young West down the stairs and thrust it through the ventilating tunnel window upon the roof of a waiting carriage. Then the train simply moved off through the tunnel with its passenger riding the roof. Precisely, Watson. Holmes, I must compliment you on the brilliance of your deduction back at Allgate Station. Nothing but logic, my dear Watson. Simple logic. Without a ticket, young West couldn't have journeyed inside the carriage. Therefore, he must have journeyed outside. Come, Watson, there's no time to lose. What next, Holmes? A thorough search of the premises. <laughs> Watson, look here. In Oberstein's cash box on his desk. What is it, Holmes? A series of notices from the agony column of the Daily Telegraph. Hmm. 
all signed by one Pierrot. Apparently a communication from Oberstein to a confederate. What do they say? I'll read the most recent. Monday night after nine. Two taps. Only ourselves. Do not be suspicious. Payment in hard cash when goods delivered. Piero. Hmm. I must say, Holmes, I'm not quite clear. I am. Watson, tomorrow morning I want you to visit the advertising office of the Daily Telegraph. And later on, we shall pay a return visit to these premises. Just 12 o'clock, Holmes. Yes. Our quarry should be here at any moment, save on our trap, Watson. Oh, here's a copy of the ad I inserted this morning, Holmes. Listen. Tonight, 12, same place, two taps, most vitally important, your own safety at stake, Piero. He would have certainly seen it. Watson, listen. Two taps on the door. The signal. Yes. It's here. Better have your service revolver ready, Watson. I'm prepared, Holmes. Good. One moment, Colonel Walter. Colonel Walter? I'm going to unlock the door, Watson. Oberstein, what the devil does this notice in the telegraph mean? I... Means the game's up, Colonel Walter. No, don't move. I warn you, Dr. Watson, it's an excellent chance. Yes, and under circumstances such as these, sir, I assure you I should not hesitate to use my service revolver. I don't know what all this is about, Mr. Holmes. There's been some mistake. I came here merely to visit Mr. Oberstein. In response to a notice in the agony column of the Daily Telegraph, Eh, my dear Colonel? Yes, a notice we wrote ourselves. You wrote it? We did indeed. But then you know? Everything, my dear Colonel. We know that young Cadogan West saw you open the vault at Woolwich Arsenal with a key you duplicated from your brother's key. But how? Elementary, my dear Colonel. The thief had to be an outsider without time, opportunity, or skill to copy the original. Therefore, he was first to purloin the original plans themselves. An examination of Sir James's key on his watch chain as he lay dead in your house revealed to me a thin waxen coat on the metal. Hence the key had been copied. And finally, your appearance here automatically indicts you. I see. And I suppose you know everything else. I do. Young West followed you on the underground to London Bridge. When he left the train, the collector took his ticket at the gate there. Hence no ticket was found on his person. Then he followed you halfway across London to Caulfield Gardens, Kensington. You became aware that he was following you, and you and Oberstein contrived to murder him. Then you lowered him through the roof of the tunnel outside this window and onto the railway carriage. An ingenious way to get rid of a corpse, Colonel. Treason was not enough for you. You had to stain your hands with murder. Mr. Holmes, Dr. Watson, I need money. I need money desperately. And the Bruce Partington plans, they were the only answer. Where are the three missing papers now? Hugo Oberstein has them in Paris. He intends to sell them to the highest bidder among the foreign powers. If I could make but some small amends for my treachery. You can. How, Mr. Holmes? Tell me how. You will write to Oberstein immediately. Tell him there is another paper you found, and without it, the three he now possesses are useless. Tell him to return at once with the three papers intact. Is that clear? Yes. Yes. Very well. Oh, Watson. Yes, Holmes? You may put away your revolver now. I think Colonel Walter intends no violence and is fully aware of his folly. And unless I miss my guess, Mr. Oberstein will return. And the Empire will once again breathe easier. Well, 
Well, that was an exciting adventure, Dr. Watson. And did Hugo Oberstein return to England? Yes, Mr. Harris, he did. And he was apprehended with the missing papers, which he had intended to offer at auction in all the naval centers of Europe. Well, was Holmes offered any reward for his good work on behalf of the Empire, Doctor? He was, but he refused all honors. Shortly thereafter, however, my friend appeared with a remarkably fine emerald tie pin. He uh, didn't mention the donor, but I suspect it came from a certain gracious lady whose august name we all know. <laughs> I see. This is Cy Harris speaking for Clippercraft Clothes. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Set in 1895, the adventure of the Bruce Partington plans with Sherlock Holmes being played by John Stanley and Ian Martin playing Dr. Watson. I got to confess, this story, Silver Blaze and Hound of the Baskervilles are my one, two, and three favorites from Sir Cohen and Arthur Doyle. Uh, Just a Bruce Partington plan. Uh, is fantastic because it has this sort of spy intrigue to it. You really feel like that if Oberstein gets these plans back to the Kaiser, it's going to be a rough go, especially with the way the nation states were playing at that time. So it was a pleasure to share it with you. Now, I'd like to thank our sponsor. Shot Shield is sponsored by Dr. Harold's Miniatures and Collectibles. The site, look, it's not pretty, but that's because Dr. Harold invests it in his stock. He doesn't invest it in the website. He invests it in the stock. And they have a ton of gaming supplies for you. You can visit them at drherald.myshopify.com. Go in, scroll through, because I guarantee you're going to find something that you're going to need. That's drherald.myshopify.com. Dr. Harold's Miniatures and Collectibles. I would also like to thank Wargaming's very own Bon Vivant and the Friar of 54mm, Claude Bailey, for joining me to talk about uh, uniform colors and, you know, assorted ramblings, because that's what happens usually when we start talking. And I always appreciate it when uh, Claude comes on the show. Right. So, you've been listening in Kalamazoo, Michigan, in Paris, France, and in Athens, Greece, to the supercast known as Shot and Shield, a podcast dedicated to 19th century wargaming and history, a program meant to be heard while you're painting your miniatures and building your terrain. I have been your host, the Grand Duke Scott of the Duchy of Florida, and I'm out. This has been a production of the Experience 13 Podcast Network. 13! Your electricity. 